Hello and welcome to episode 20 of The Beethoven Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about the piano sonatas of Opus 31. And we're going to start with Opus 31 number 2, the so-called Tempest Sonata. Of course, we're used to nicknames for works that have been assigned not by the composers themselves, but by their publishers, or sometimes by others long after the fact. But in this case, we should probably take a minute to examine the origin of the title. First of all, there is the story told by Anton Schindler that, when asked a question about interpreting this sonata, along with Opus 57, the Appassionata Sonata, Beethoven directed that the questioner should read Shakespeare's Tempest. It is conventional to be wary of Schindler as a source in matters of this sort, since he always seems so overly anxious to portray himself as an intimate of Beethoven and privy to his most profound thoughts. But, on the other hand, it's quite possible that Beethoven would have been aware of the play and its reputation, whether or not he had actually read the whole work, and that sort of name-dropping, wherein he would hint at great profundity of thought without really expressing it, was by no means alien to him. And, of course, there is the nature of the first movement itself, particularly the very dramatic development section, which Beethoven student Czerny quoted Beethoven as characterizing as storm-like. At any rate, the nickname has held fast to the sonata for many years, and most pianists and listeners have found no reason to question it as an effective descriptor. This work, by the way, most definitely shows Beethoven taking off in a new and very personal direction. When we encounter stylistic shifts of the sort represented by the Tempest Sonata, it is not unreasonable to suggest that works like this can no longer be described as early Beethoven at all. Are we therefore in second period Beethoven? Of course, not everyone agrees as to just where Beethoven's creative periods fall, either in terms of a specified date or in terms of a single composition that represents a safe line of demarcation. And it's easy to see why there are disagreements about these matters. Changes in a composer's style are usually not immediate and perpetual or final in nature. One work, like the Tempest Sonata, can be seen as breaking the mold or at least heading in a new direction, but that does not mean that every work composed from that point on will fit the same description. It turns out that Opus 31 Number 1 is also a very distinctive and personal work, although in a very different way than Number 2. But that certainly doesn't mean that every piano sonata from this point on not to mention the many and varied orchestral and chamber music compositions, will fit the description nearly as well. As I've mentioned before, no composer wants to compose the same work over and over again, and not every work from this point on will seem as personal as The Tempest. The first movement is in D minor, common time, and initially marked Largo. It begins with an unusual gesture, a rolled, whole-note, pianissimo, dominant chord, tied into the next measure with a fermata. It's in first inversion, so that the third is in the bass, and placed low in the piano's range. Above it, the first important melodic motive appears, a simple ascending arpeggiation of that dominant chord, the notes pedaled together and ending up in the normal right-hand piano range, 
This is what it sounds like. Even on first hearing, I think the listener probably expects this very low-key opening to erupt into something more dramatic. And it does, sort of. What we hear next is a four-measure phrase which is more clearly recognizable as a theme in the conventional sense. As you heard, the tempo shifted quickly to allegro, and a theme consisting almost entirely of eighth notes was upon us quickly. The eighth notes slurred in pairs, the first pair starting as a pickup note on the fourth beat of the second measure. The first eighth note of most of these pairs is a dissonance against the prevailing harmony, and it resolves down to a consonant note. And that note is immediately repeated but this time heard as a dissonance as the chord beneath it changes, and so forth and so on. The melodic motion began on the fifth scale degree, right where the introductory motive left off, and moved down the scale to the first scale degree, but then jumped back to the fifth of the scale to start the pattern all over again. And then we hear a leap up an octave, and the descending motive is heard from that point. My description notwithstanding, the ear doesn't hear any of this as a complex pattern. What may not have been noticeable on the first hearing was the motion of the bass line, which regularly moves contrary to the right-hand melody. Something that I'm sure was noticeable was that after the four-bar phrase had run its course, the tempo again slows to first adagio and then largo, and then something very much like the two introductory measures reappear although now in F major. You'll notice that I referred to this four-bar phrase as a theme and the first two bars as introductory to it. Not everyone hears this movement that way. Some hear the first 20 bars of the movement as an introduction, with the real first theme not coming until measure 21. The fact that both the idea heard in the first two bars and the phrase that I referred to as the first theme both come back and play a role later in the movement doesn't necessarily indicate that they couldn't be considered introductory, because the nature of introductions was clearly changing at this point. Of course, there's no reason to expect that Beethoven would have wasted a moment debating within himself whether something was an introduction and the other thing was the first theme. On the other hand, he knew his audience had expectations, at least the better informed among them, that they would be listening for certain things and expect things to go in a certain way because they had heard so much music that followed something like these patterns before. And you may also remember that Beethoven had earlier been criticized for the lack of organic connection in his compositions. So I think it makes sense to try to work out how and to what degree Beethoven's increasingly novel approaches to form meshed with his listeners' expectations. 
After the second appearance of the introductory measures, now in F major, Beethoven shifts back to Allegro and presents a variant of his original four-bar first theme, now stretched out to 12 bars. It resembles the original theme in its use of slurred eighth notes, but this time the melody reaches increasingly higher in its first four bars, before making a long gradual descent, initially in the right hand only, but soon joined in octaves by the left hand. And it stays in F major only briefly. We find ourselves securely back in D minor for the last several measures. You probably noticed that in the second part of this section, the melody tended to sound less theme-like and more like a transition, especially after the left hand dropped out for a few measures in the middle and we finish with a chromatically ascending line in the right hand over a solid 5-7-1 cadence on D minor. What it transitions into is, in the opinion of some analysts, the proper first theme. But how proper a theme is it? Here's a slowed down and simplified version, leaving out the accompanying triplets in the middle voice. This theme combines two very different melodic gestures. The first, in the left-hand bass clef, is based on an ascending triad which concludes an octave higher than it began, on a sustained note, an idea which relates to the opening introductory measures of the movement. The second idea, heard in the right-hand treble clef and alternating with the first, starts on A, the fifth scale degree, and is based on a sinuous chromatic line, which first moves below the A and then above it, before repeating the A in a sustained tone. After eight bars, this theme, such as it is, begins to lose its identity, as the chromatic line in the right hand gives way to single notes on the third beat of each measure, and the left hand arpeggio motive is repeated a step higher four times in a row. It's clear at this point that the theme has morphed into a modulatory transition, and we may actually be abandoning the key of D minor in a serious way for the first time as evidenced by Beethoven's purposeful efforts to establish the key of A minor by constant reference to its dominant. The second subject has some very distinctive rhythmic qualities, but its emphasis on ascending half-steps and slurring patterns link it to both of the earlier D minor themes.
We know from earlier episodes that when a movement begins in a minor key, it's customary that the second subject be in the relative major in a sonata form movement. But we also know that Beethoven and sometimes others before him did not always follow that tendency and occasionally put the second subject in the minor dominant key. And that's obviously what is happening here. But in many of those situations where the second subject is in the minor dominant, there is usually some reference to the relative major key, quite possibly in the closing section or codetta. You heard a little of the closing section at the end of my last excerpt. It's probably most notable for its multiple sforzando accents and initially the repeated use of a particular chromatic chord, the so-called Neapolitan sixth chord. We've encountered this one before. It's built on the lower second scale degree, and it usually resolves to the dominant chord, although in this case it sounds more disruptive than usual because Beethoven initially put so much emphasis on it. But disrupted or not, the fact is that we never really leave A minor, not here and not in the codetta that follows, which draws to some extent from the second subject in A minor and which initially shifts the sforzano accents to weak beats before coming to a close quietly on A minor. It is true that we visited F major very briefly when the second appearance of the introductory measures moved into the second allegro section, but that reference to F major lasted all of three measures. So what happened to the much vaunted concept of classical balance, in this case minor keys balanced with major? This is one of those pieces where Beethoven apparently believed that the concentration on a single mood or a series of related moods was more important than the traditional concern with balancing minor and major modes, at least in the exposition. While the second ending for the exposition closes on the tonic note of A with a three-octave whole note tied to another, that note then moves down a step to G as the tempo changes to Largo and we have the beginning of the development section. The introductory measures that began the movement now make a reappearance pianissimo as before, but the ascending chord arpeggiation spells out a D major chord rather than A major, again peaking on a fermata. But this time we do not move directly into our dynamic eighth note dominated first theme. Instead, the introductory measures are repeated this time on an F-sharp diminished 7th chord. Now, for the third time, the opening two measures are repeated, this time spelling out an F-sharp major triad. We might well expect at this point to hear the first theme enter, perhaps in B minor, having been set up for that by the F-sharp major chord. But instead, we surge into the second subject, now starting in F-sharp minor, allegro and fortissimo, but moving methodically and forcefully through a series of keys. Here is the beginning of the development section.
We'll jump now to the recapitulation back in D minor with the return of the two, by this time, very familiar introductory chords. But these do not pass this time around to the faster eighth note dominated theme, but rather to a recitative-like section marked Largo. Here are the final measures of the development section going into the recapitulation. Returning to the Largo tempo marking for the return of those original introductory chords, while not completely unexpected, is itself a disruption of the energetic flow established in the development section. But now, tacking on to these two introductory chords, a rather slowly paced recitative section of four bars results in a major disruption of the continuity. Beethoven did not invent this device. Charles Rosen has pointed out that interrupting the musical momentum with a passage of recitative was something that C.P.E. Bach indulged in fairly often. But it was still an unusual gesture and certainly would seem to encourage those who are inclined to explain the continuity of this movement as somehow linked to the narrative of Shakespeare's play. As you heard, the eighth note theme does now return and again passes into another adagio, then largo section, with another recurrence of the opening chords, this time seemingly tilting toward F minor, the key in which the next interpolated recitative section is introduced. After a fermata, this yields to a new transition passage, different this time around in two ways. First, because it enharmonically reinterprets the final note of the recitative to send us off into a totally new tonal direction, although just temporarily. Second, because it doesn't deliver us to that second main theme in D minor that I refer to in the exposition, that theme, the one that began with the ascending triad in the bass clef, is simply skipped over. Instead, our transition delivers us to the theme originally heard in A minor, but now appearing in D minor. After the theme has concluded, we hear another closing section, similar to the first, and an interesting little coda that evokes, as Czerny put it, possibly echoing Beethoven's characterization, the rumbling of distant thunder. But we are going to move on to the next movement, 
It's in B-flat major, 3-4 time, and marked adagio. It opens with a rolled chord like the first movement, but this time starting from the root of the tonic chord. There are other similarities. The first theme, like the second in the first movement, initially alternates two distinct gestures, a rolled chord in the lower part of the piano range, answered by a short, dotted rhythm motive which ascends up a third by step in the right hand, which soon comes to dominate the melodic activity, frequently ornamented by a turning figure. Some commentators have also remarked on the similarity between the rising melodic line of the first six measures and the first recitative passage in the first movement. Here is the first subject. My excerpt seeped a little into the modulatory transition, one that introduces a quite distinctive new four-note motive in the bass clef, a repeated 32nd-note triplet figure leading to an eighth note, which bounces back and forth between octaves. This motive occurs, sometimes in varied form, in almost every measure of the transition, which first undermines the original key of B-flat major, and then moves toward F major, the key of the dominant for the second subject. The second subject, marked dolce, is also based to a degree on dotted rhythm figures, actually double dotted eighths in this case, but it is in many ways a more conventional second subject in type, based largely on arpeggios of the tonic F major chord for the first two beats of each measure. Here's a little of the end of the modulatory transition moving into the second subject.
At the end of my excerpt, you heard the beginning of a very brief development section, marked by the reemergence of those bass clef triplet figures I just mentioned, and a series of diminished chords reminiscent of those that began the modulatory transition section. When slow movements such as this one do follow sonata form, it is often a significantly truncated version of that form. The second subject here was itself rather short, at eight measures in length, and the development section is even shorter, at a mere five measures, and never really leaves F major, although the diminished chords above the repeated bass clef triplet figures do introduce a little short-range tonal uncertainty. This section is so brief that it might well be referred to simply as a transition back to the first theme rather than an actual development section. We are, at any rate, soon back in B-flat major with a variant of the first subject. The same dotted rhythm motive dominates, but it now competes with a new series of swiftly moving arpeggios in the left hand. Here is just a little of the recapitulation featuring the now varied first subject with the addition of the new arpeggio patterns. Following the varied recapitulation of the first subject, we encounter a new version of the modulatory transition, which contains many of the same elements as the original, but which is not, of course, assigned the task of modulating to the dominant this time. The second subject then returns, now in B-flat major, and there is a somewhat new and interesting coda with some abrupt dynamic contrasts as we approach the final cadence. But we are going to move on now to the third movement. It is certainly a spirited one in D minor 3-8 time and marked allegretto. It unfolds in a continuous flow of 16th notes between the two hands, with a distinctive four-note motive in the right hand, which starts on the second half of B2 with an ascending leap of a minor sixth and then curls back down the third. This motive, stated piano, is heard four times in a row against a repeated left-hand arpeggiation of the tonic chord. Then, in measures 4 through 7, a variant of the same motive is repeated, the ascending leap now stretched up to a seventh over the dominant chord. This melodic pattern is continued with variation as we crescendo briefly and branch out a bit harmonically, introducing new chords into the mix 
a subdominant and submediant to be specific, before working our way back to the tonic D minor chord. Then, after a linking measure based on a tonic arpeggio, we repeat bars 10 through 13 and arrive at another cadence. A descending chromatic line introduces another cadential tag, which, when repeated, brings us to the most emphatic cadence to this point, which coincides with the beginning of the transition. My excerpt also included a bit of the modulatory transition, in which you probably noticed that the distinctive four-note motive from the first subject continued to play an important role, most notably in the left hand low in the bass clef range. There were other motivic ideas present as well, for example, a series of leaping octaves moving up and down triadic patterns octaves which might possibly be thought of as having derived from the very last measure of the first theme. Tonally, we move from D minor to C major to A minor, where the second subject is introduced, a somewhat unusual minor dominant key, but one which we just encountered in the first movement of the sonata. The second subject begins with a very distinctive new motive presented forte, repeated eighth notes moving down a half-step, a mordant or short trill on the first of the pair, which, along with the left-hand accompaniment pattern, creates cross-rhythms with the prevailing triple meter. After five bars, all of them prolonging the dominant seventh chord, the tension is temporarily released by a quieter descending pattern in staccato eighth notes that finally delivers us to a tonic chord. But then the motive starts back up again, this time, the mordant is replaced by an even more dynamic octave leap until a staccato stepwise scale line in octaves, starting piano but soon crescendoing, takes us to an emphatic cadence. Here are the final bars of the transition going into the second subject. When the second subject concludes with a strong cadence, a new motive, or at least a somewhat new motive, is introduced, which echoes the octave leaps from the second subject as well as rhythmic patterns from the first. It starts quietly, crescendos, and then comes back down quickly. This passes to a series of stepwise eighth notes and then sixteenth notes in leaping octaves as we move to the end of the exposition.
The development section is remarkably persistent in its exploitation of the dynamic first subject motive, and when the first theme comes back in the recapitulation, everything seems orthodox enough, but it soon departs into new tonal areas never even hinted at in the exposition. The second subject, slightly varied, comes back in D minor as we would expect, and there is a perfectly energetic coda, although it doesn't offer much that is actually new. But energy abounds throughout, and there's no question that the third movement wraps up the sonata as a whole with a great deal of dramatic vigor. We'll move on now to Opus 31, number 3, Beethoven's 17th piano sonata, nicknamed The Hunt. It's in E-flat major and has some unique features of its own. The first movement in 3-4 time in marked allegro begins with a distinctive dotted note figure, a dotted eighth dropping a fifth from the sixth scale degree in the key to a sixteenth note and quarter note on the second scale degree. This motive is immediately repeated in the second measure. It's been widely characterized as a hunting horn motive, but it lacks the robust quality, at least at this point, which might well be associated with the hunt. First of all, it's harmonized not with a solid-sounding E-flat major tonic chord, but with a colorful and rather gentle supertonic seventh chord, the seventh chord built on the second scale degree, and in this case inverted, with the third of the chord in the bass. So, while the melodic motive in the right hand sounds assertive enough in and of itself, the harmonic context makes it sound almost tentative, especially when played at a soft dynamic level. The melody then begins to ascend from the second scale degree, and we do eventually begin to crescendo by the fourth measure. But even here, we seem to proceed hesitantly, with a ritardando and repeated diminished seventh chords before coming to a stop and a fermata on a tonic 6-4 chord, a tonic chord with a fifth in the bass. Tonic 6-4 chords generally resolve to dominant chords, and that's what happens here, in measure 7, where Beethoven begins what we assume will be a typically energetic first subject. It certainly starts out that way, beginning with 8th notes and soon mixing in 16th notes. But soon the left hand drops out, and we are left with an ascending scale in the right hand based on 8th note triplets which begin staccato and which finish an octave and a half higher with a varied repeat of the first six measures, closing again on a fermata. At this point, we might well begin to wonder if all this stopping and starting and seeming reluctance to establish any kind of a consistent flow is simply going to be the nature of this particular first subject. But eventually, after the second fermata, Beethoven finally establishes a more regular continuity, 
one in which that first thematic idea introduced in measure 7 plays a part, but so does the dotted rhythm figure and descending fifths of the so-called horn motive, along with some more generic arpeggio-based staccato passages. But we are not finished with those more tentative opening measures. They recur in the transition to the second subject, with the opening horn call motive made considerably more poignant as it now occurs within the context of a half-diminished seventh chord, which more than one commentator has pointed out looks ahead to Wagner's much more famous Tristan chord. Here's an excerpt beginning after the second fermata and extending to the end of the transitions section. The second subject is a somewhat more conventional one, but rhythmically quite lively. It begins with an ascending leap of a fourth to a dotted quarter note, and then generally descends with pairs of sixteenths and eighths slurred together. After its initial presentation and a series of almost cadenza-like sixteenth note flourishes, it's repeated in a more highly embellished version. It then merges into a brief closing section characterized by a number of trills, both short and long, that takes us to the end of the exposition and into the repeat. The development section naturally focuses in on the hunting call motive, with its dotted rhythm and drop of a fifth. It actually begins by quoting the opening bars of the movement in the original key, but doesn't stay there long, and uses the horn motive to take us in the direction of F major. But other motives figure in substantially as well, including a slurred pair of sixteenths executing a dramatic descending leap. It showed up first as an auxiliary motive in the first subject, but makes a major contribution here, often appearing in the baseline and taking on a level of importance that probably would not have been predicted. Here's a little of that part of the development section. Mm -hmm. 
The recapitulation unfolds in a reasonably orderly manner, with the second subject naturally shifted to the original tonic key of E-flat major. The coda cannot, of course, resist one last look at the opening measures of the movement before charging on to its conclusion. But we are going to move on to the charming scherzo movement. Again, it's not a conventional scherzo. It's in duple meter rather than triple, marked allegretto vivace, and the overall form is somewhat sonata-like. We're in A-flat major, and the right hand introduces the first subject in three-part block chords, alternating with two parts, often sixths. The left-hand accompaniment is quite distinctive, mostly alternating between quick broken chords and octave leaps, all played staccato. The right-hand melody ascends by step, gradually and rather nobly at first, but picks up rhythmic momentum as it proceeds. The first four bars are repeated and extended to five, and then we encounter a quiet little pianissimo passage based initially on a descending line, played in octaves, which seems playful rather than noble. This unexpected passage puts the key center temporarily in doubt, but after some fluctuations in tempo and affermata, we launch back into our noble block chord theme, clearly in A-flat major but then it yields again to the same pianissimo passage, which this time serves as something of a transition to the second subject. Let's hear that much. The relatively quiet transition passage hasn't really prepared us for what we hear next, a pair of fortissimo block chords in both hands which assert F major. This is followed, suddenly dropping down to piano, with a passage of sixteenth note staccato broken chords in both hands, which soon show every sign of moving to the key of B-flat major although some passing chromatic chords tend to put that goal in doubt from time to time, and eventually we hear that our ultimate goal is E-flat major. Not really a surprise, since that would be the expected key of the dominant in a major key sonata form. So has all this been the actual second subject, or just an elaborate transition passage to the real second subject? Probably the latter because we do finally arrive in E-flat major and we encounter a real tune, or at least a fragment of a tune, one which would not be out of place in a comic opera aria. But it's short, and played very softly, hanging around only for eight bars before we begin to drive toward the final cadence that concludes the exposition. Here is the beginning of the entire section from the fortissimo block chords in F major, which we don't really expect, all the way through to the first ending of the exposition, including that theme in E-flat major, which really sounds more like a charming little codetta theme than a bona fide second subject. 
It all happens very quickly. We'll move on now to the menuetto. We might well expect a slow movement here rather than a scherzo and a somewhat old-fashioned minuet in the same sonata, but this combination is not unprecedented. Beethoven's String Quartet in C minor, opus 18, number 4, had made use of a similar configuration. And the opening melody, marked moderato e grazioso, does display some of the graceful, understated elegance we've heard in some earlier Beethoven slow movements. Here is the first section. The second section does introduce a rather sharp dissonance, a sustained appoggiatura on B natural, which does eventually resolve down a step to the expected consonants. This could be heard as a harbinger of things to come, although the remainder of the second section remains properly conservative. The trio is a bit quirkier. The first section begins quietly on the tonic with rather thick block chords, closing in the fourth bar on the dominant. The second four bars introduce new, somewhat puzzling, diminished seventh chords, followed by a new, powerful unison line that also closes on the dominant. The second, longer section picks up the diminished seventh chord sonorities of the first section and fairly pounds them into our consciousness, alternating with the staccato repetitions of the fifth scale degree in octaves. Since the ear tends to merge these components, the end result is an unusual dominant minor ninth chord, a dominant seventh chord with a flat ninth juxtaposed over it. Like the first section, we begin quietly here and in the same rhythm of a half note on beat one, followed by a quarter on beat three. But as this unusual sonority repeats, it crescendos and soon begins to repeat in a duple pattern, creating a cross rhythm against the prevailing triple measure feel. It's not immediately clear where all of this is going, but in the end it seems as if it's all part of the scherzoish humor however sardonic it may be, and the chord just behaves like the super-dominant chord it is, 
and resolves back to the tonic E-flat chord. This introduces the varied return of the first section of the trio, creating a typical rounded binary form within the trio. In this case, we do not simply decapo back and repeat the first section of the scherzo. Instead, Beethoven composes out a variant of the original scherzo, both sections, and closes with a brief coda. The finale is frisky in the extreme, more of a scherzo than the scherzo. It's back in E-flat major, 6-8 time, and marked presto con fuoco but it's not so much fiery as it is persistent in almost a perpetual motion fashion. Driving 6-8 rhythms, 6-8 notes to the bar, are everywhere, although there is an occasional break in the action, just so Beethoven can start it up again with great effect. The first theme, which enters after a couple of measures of tonic arpeggios, is quite simple, really just a single phrase consisting of a descending arpeggiation of the dominant seventh chord closing on the tonic. We hear it four times altogether, shifting between two octaves in the space of 12 measures. Here it is, with my excerpt extending a bit into the transition section that follows it. In the transition to the second subject, Beethoven spends a great deal of time convincing us that we are no longer in the original tonic key of E-flat, including a brief tilt in the direction of A-flat minor and later C minor. But he doesn't seem all that anxious to actually confirm the new key of B-flat, the key of the dominant, and introduce a contrasting second subject in that key. In fact, by the time we arrive at a really rock-solid cadence in the new key of B-flat major, the exposition is almost over, and the second subject arrives at just about the point where we might expect a codetta theme, and in fact, it sounds more like a codetta theme than a real second subject. This new theme is even simpler and jauntier than the first, this time arpeggiating up the B-flat major chord with a characteristic mix of slurs and staccatos tied to a galloping rhythm. This ascending motion was previewed in the transition section, but it still seems fresh when we encounter it here. Here's an excerpt showing the transition leading to the second subject, the drive to the cadence concluding the exposition, and the first few bars of the repeat. 
After a fermata on a dominant seventh chord on B-flat, the development section plunges into G-flat major, although it does so initially via the dominant chord in that key. But soon there's an enharmonic shift to F-sharp, and that F-sharp soon takes us to B minor, which is, needless to say, quite remote from the keys that dominated in the exposition. Now, various thematic ideas from the exposition are tossed around in the course of these often unexpected modulations, although it would be difficult to maintain that they were somehow transformed into something weightier in the process. What does happen, because of the intensity with which all of these ideas are being exploited and repeated, is a series of climaxes that at times almost seems to out-tempest the development section of the Tempest Sonata, although here everything is done with a wink and a sly smile and without the seriousness of purpose heard in Opus 31, number 2. Here's a bit of the development section. actually back into the recapitulation fairly quietly, and Beethoven decides at that point to wrap things up rather quickly. And with the motives from the second subject having been hashed over pretty thoroughly in the development section, the recapitulation is all about the first subject, which seems more innocent than ever, despite the fluctuations in dynamics and tempo that characterize the final measures of the movement. We haven't said anything about Opus 31, number 1, which is probably composed after number 2, and it does exhibit some pleasing quirks of its own. But we are out of time for this episode, and we'll stop here. For our next episode, we'll look at the so-called Eroica Variations for Piano, Opus 35, and a few of the charming bagatelles from Opus 33.